Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 23rd, 2020, and my guest is Don Boudreau of George Mason University. This is Don's 14th appearance on Econ Talk. He was last year in June of 2017 when he was joined by Mike Munger, and we talked about emergent order. I want to encourage listeners to go to econtalk.org for our annual survey of your favorite episodes. Don, welcome back to Econ Talk. Always good to be here, Russ. Our topic for today is the work of James Buchanan, in particular two of his essays. Uh, they are What Should Economists Do and Natural and Artifactual Man. They're both readable, accessible, mostly to a general reader, and available in the book The Logical Foundations of Constitutional Liberty, published by Liberty Fund, the sponsor of EconTalk. And got the book right here uh, for listeners to uh, – for viewers to look at, really exciting, uh, great visual, of course. Um, but I wanted to start us off by having you give us an overview of Buchanan's work generally, uh, and then we'll turn to the to the specific essays. So, talk about your relationship with him, how long you know, how long you knew him, and uh, and more generally, what what his economic philosophy and, and work was about. There are a few scholars who have had a bigger impact on my own thinking than. Van Buchanan, um, he was, just biographical details quickly, he was born in 1919 on a farm in uh, near Murfreesboro, Tennessee. He died on January 9th, 2013. Uh, and in 1986, uh, he won the Nobel Prize in Economics, and he, he was the only recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics that year. He's mo- if you ask the typical economist, of course, um, they will say that James Buchanan is the founder or a co-founder of public choice economics, and he certainly was that, uh, and that played a major role in why the, the Swedish Central Bank decided to award him a Nobel Prize, but he, his work was, was much more than that. He was notorious, or famously, not notoriously, famously a workaholic. Uh, his uh, collect, collected works, as you mentioned, collected by Liberty Fund, or allude to, uh, through his first publications in 1949 through 2000, uh, comprised 19 volumes, uh, not counting an index. And then he continued working uh, un- almost until he died. He was publishing as recently as 2012. Uh, so he, he, he worked really hard. He worked mostly in public finance, the intersection of, of private decision-making and pu- political decision-making, collective decision-making. His PhD is from the University of Chicago. Uh, uh, he it, it very famously uh, regards uh, the, the famous University of Chicago economist Frank Knight as one of his great teachers, although he didn't write his dissertation under Frank Knight. He wrote his dissertation under someone named Roy Blau, but uh, he, he, Buchanan, regarded Knight as his, as his great teacher. And if you read Buchanan's work, Frank uh, references to Frank Knight, admiration for Frank Knight comes comes through. Buchanan finished his dissertation at Chicago in the late 1940s. His first teaching job was at the University of Tennessee 
He was there for a few years. He spent five years, I think, on the economics faculty at Florida State. And then in 1956, he moved to the University of Virginia, where he was joined by his University of Chicago classmate. I'm not sure they were in the same cohort, but they were at the University of Chicago together, Warren Nutter. In 1957, Buchanan and Nutter founded the Thomas Jefferson Center at the University of Virginia. This is really the beginning of what Buchanan later came to call Virginia political economy. This is public choice and unique approach to looking at collective decision-making through the lens of, of, of classical liberalism, very much influenced by the Austrians, or very parallel with the Austrians. Uh, uh, auspiciously, uh, Warren Nutter was on the debate team at Chicago with a University of Chicago law student named Gordon Tullock, uh, who only took one economics class in his life, and that was in the law school from Henry Simons. Uh, through Warren Nutter, as I understand it, Buchanan uh, brought Tullock to UVA as a postdoc in 1958. And of course, for the readers, for the listeners who know, uh, Buchanan and Tullock wrote what is still the, the, the single most iconic book in public choice scholarship, The Calculus of Consent, which was published in 1962. Uh, Tullock and Buchanan continued their careers together. They stayed at Virginia uh, through the late 1960s. There was a breakup there because of upper administration problems. They, they, they separated for a year. Uh, a year uh, in 1969, they reunited together at Virginia Tech, uh, then called VPI. They were at VPI through 1983, when, again, upper administration problems at that school caused them to leave again. In 1982, uh, uh, the Center for Study of Public Choice moved to George Mason University. Buchanan and Tulloch followed one year later in a move to George Mason University, from which they both retired. Buchanan retired from George Mason in 1999, I believe it was, although he continued to be active. Russ, you, 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 when you were here, you saw Buchanan often on campus. Yeah. He continued to be active really until the very end. Uh, he would, even though he was retired, he would teach a seminar every spring for graduate students. I believe he did that through 2007, 2008. Uh, Gordon Tullock retired from GMU in 2008. And he died um, in uh, uh, like Buchanan in his nineties uh, in uh, twenty fourteen. Uh, uh, so Buchanan again, mostly and and rightly known chiefly for being the founder of public choice economics, but saying that really doesn't quite capture the full breadth of his contributions. And also one other thing that I, I want to register here at the beginning. Um, I remember when Buchanan got the Nobel Prize in 1986. It was my second year in the faculty at George Mason. It was very exciting. Buchanan gets the Nobel Prize. And in the, the commentary in the press at the time was really quite, quite annoying in, in, in many cases. A lot of people say, well, what's this guy getting the Nobel Prize for? All he's doing is pointing out that politicians are self-interested. Everybody knows that. Well, first of all, his contributions were far more than politicians are self-interested. Yes, everybody that is, knows that. That is a, <laughs> a, got, a possible one-sentence summary of what public choice is, which you have not defined, by the way. But, but so I'll just oh. – for listeners who don't know what public choice is as a subfield or discipline within economics, it, it generally means applying the tools of economic thinking to political behavior and to politicians. So carry on. 
Yeah. And so, so it, it, it can be summarized as saying, look, when we analyze pol- political decision making, we'll, we're going to analyze it, analyze it using the same assumptions about human motivation that we use when we analyze private market decision makings. We're not going to assume that people are self-interested when, they're, when they operate as consumers and business owners and managers and workers, and then assume that they become saints when they enter government. If we want to accurately compare the market to political outcomes, which is really one of the main things that economics is useful for, we want to compare apples to apples. And so we want to make this comparison uh, useful by using the same assumptions about basic human motivations. So that's what public choice is. It sounds in a way, when you say it that way, it sounds trite. But the fact is, when Buchanan began uh, uh, what later came to be known as public choice. The name public choice didn't come around until the 1970s, early, early 70s. When Buchanan began this research program, it wasn't that trite. Remember, so Buchanan, he serves in the Navy under Chester Nimitz. Uh, and so he, he is in that generation of people where democracy is riding high. The Allies defeated you know, the totalitarian Nazis, and suddenly, in the late, starting in the late 1940s, we in the West find ourselves at loggerheads with this totalitarian monster in, in the East. So the democratic West versus the, the totalitarian non-democratic East, Russia and China. So democracy is riding high. And Buchanan was a great fan of, bureauc- of, of democracy, contrary to, to uh, uh, some beliefs. But he said, look, let's understand it. Let's, let, let's look at how it actually works. Because if we look at how it actually works, we'll better understand it. If we better understand it, then we can make sure that it works as best as is humanly possible, rather than just assuming that when people walk into the voting booth, uh, it's all going to be bluebirds and, 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 and snowflakes and, and wonderful things. So Buchanan turned his incredibly deep analytical mind to studying the details of how democracy works. So that's public choice. Buchanan wasn't the only person, by the way, as you know, uh, in the mid nineteen in the mid twentieth century to to do this. Kenneth Arrow, George Stigler, other people did it. Buchanan did it, however, in a in in, in a unique way. Uh, uh, again, along with Gordon Tullock, as I said earlier, Buchanan later came to call this Virginia political economy. While Virginia political economy shared a lot with the the, the same broad kind of research that was taking place at Harvard with Kenneth Arrow, uh, later at Stanford, at Chicago with, with um, uh, uh, George Stigler, a little bit at UCLA with Sam Peltzman. Uh, the, the, there was a uniqueness about the Virginia approach, a uniqueness contributed mostly by Buchanan, and I think we'll get to that in the details of our discussion uh, that, 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 that are coming up. Yeah, just a couple of reactions to that. First of all, I would guess that there is no Nobel Prize winner in economics who's an economist who has read as little by modern graduate students as James Buchanan. There might be a couple from the past, but in general, he's not on the syllabi, I think, of a modern graduate program. That's a good uh, point. I agree. Which, which is uh, just a fact. Uh, we, you and I might wish it were otherwise, but I think it's true. Um, He's not a mathematician. Uh, his work can be generally read uh, by human beings. 
he has a deep philosophical interest to go alongside his economics interest. It'll come out today, I think, in our conversation. And I just want to say one thing about public choice because it, your your remarks about it. I, I remember having coffee with um, a journalist, a prominent journalist, uh, who um, made some assumption about government. And I said, well, you know, actually economists uh, think that that politicians act generally in their own self-interest. Of course, they can have high motives alongside their self-interested ones, just like we all do as human beings. We're not merely self-interested or at least in the narrow sense of selfish. So I just was making the point that, you know, economists actually take this richer view than often one hears. And he was deeply offended by this. And the reason he was offended was, you know, he said he said to me, he said, look, I'm a hard-nosed, skeptical journalist. I don't I don't take what politicians say for, you know, as 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 gospel about what they really mean or what they intend or I'm not, you know, don't don't treat me like some naive person. But he had already just said, he didn't I don't remember the exact quote. He had already implied that that's actually the way he looks at it. And and I think I think it's uh the example I would use and it's a, I just love this example that you know, you read something in the newspaper that you happen to know something about. Let's say it's um my case, it might be uh, some some poetry thing or some literature thing or or Judaism or something I know a little bit more probably than the average general journalist. Not a specialist. I'm not a specialist in any of those things, but I know a little bit about those things. It might be a technical issue like, I don't know, chemistry. You read about it the way it's covered in the pr- general press and you realize, oh my gosh, there are all these errors and mistakes. And then you, you're just horrified that this thing that you know a lot about is is butchered by the press. Then you turn the page and you read an article about something else and you totally forget that it's no different than the chemistry article. It, it also is full of mistakes, but you just sort of, it's not your area. So you just kind of assume that the journalist is informing you. <laughs> and yeah, this is not yeah. a, this is not a criticism of journalists. It's hard to, you know, hard to describe things accurately in general or better way to say it. It's hard to describe things with nuance I think a lot of times what specialists get offended by is that the journalists will ignore some issue of nuance or whatever. But, you know, I think the same thing is hap- happens with politics. You know, it's it's sort of this view that, oh, yeah, well, most of them are crooks, except for mine. Mine's yeah. wonderful. My representative, my senator, my president, my candidate, whatever it is, that person's a good soul. That You know, their heart's in the right place. Those other people are terrible. So yeah. I think it's very hard. What I think distinguishes a public choice perspective uh, from a sort of cynical perspective that a journalist might have is that the economists and public choice are very aware of that issue. And they're very, uh, they're less likely to succumb to hero worship, ideological comfort from a candidate and tend to view it from a, in a more, um, uh, see it more as a circus to be observed rather than something to, to cheer for uh, yeah. like a football team. I, I think the natural impulse we have toward tribalism that gets us to root for our, our ideological, political, partisan tribe is is hard for people to remember. And if you're in public choice, you kind of think about it all the time. So you yeah. tend not to be as prone to that kind of rom- what I would call the romanticization of politics or the political process. You're very aware it's a sausage factory, and you don't think it's <laughs> you don't get fooled to thinking it's a it's a rainbow factory. That's right. 
Well, in fact, uh, you know, one of one of Buchanan's more famous essays, one of his least technical ones, uh, is one he wrote in 1979 called "Politics Without Romance," and it was one of his attempts to summarize the essence of public choice. And the title, in those three words, nicely summarizes it. It's not politics is bad. It's not politics. Uh, uh, politicians are evil, as sometimes people mischaracterize the choice. It's politics without romance. Let's look at it realistically rather than romantically. Yeah. And, 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 and who, who could possibly dispute that? Yeah. And, and, and again, it then if, if you're not careful, it then is seen as, sort of, well, let's try it. Everybody knows that. And by the way, it's not much different than other Nobel Prizes that the one sentence variation you know, James Tobin's Nobel Prize is don't put all your eggs in one basket. And people yeah. react, react to it going, they got a Nobel Prize for that? Everybody knows that. Well, there's a little more to it. You know, th- that's, the, yeah. that's the Twitter version. But, yeah. you know, for what it's worth. So yeah. let's, turn, let's turn to the essays uh, that we're going to talk about today. And I, I'm going to read occasionally from, from the essay. The first one, uh, What Should Economists Do? And... Uh, I want to quote, he says here, economists should concentrate their attention on a particular form of human activity and upon the various institutional arrangements that arise as a result of this form of activity. Man's behavior in the market relationship, reflecting the propensity to truck and to barter, and the manifold variations in structure that this relationship can take, these are the proper subjects for the economist study, and of course, the truck and barter references is is, is is alluding to Adam Smith uh, that that we have a propensity to truck barter in exchange. And I want to I want to emphasize exchange. Truck yeah. is an old fashioned word to mean make a deal. Yeah, barter yeah. means to make a deal without cash. It means to trade a thing for another thing. Exchange. Well, truck and barter are forms of exchange, but we could think of other forms of exchange. And I'm just going to pick one because it's on my mind and I think it's so perfect, which is, um, you know, a friend of mine got a present the other day and she's trying to decide, oh, yeah, what do I do? What am I going to give back to them? And I was thinking, yeah, well, you just got a present. You know, why don't you just take it, say thank you? (laughs) You know, thing to give back is thank you. But in her mind, actually, it's my mom. It's not my friend. I I just I didn't want to. But this is so my mom. In her mind, it's like, I've got to, I've got to reciprocate. And that human desire, in fact, it, by the time my mom's done on a narrow utility calculus <laughs> of an economist, she's going to be worse off in the sense that yeah. she will spend more time creating something for the other person than she got in pleasure from their gift. But mm-hmm. that totally misses the point, yeah. right? So that exchange, and I'm just, just think of it as a, an example uh, gift giving is an example of exchange that is um it's not truck it's not barter uh but it's very important part of human human interactions so what what Buchanan is saying and it's a very subtle idea on the surface it's not but it's quite subtle what he's saying is that instead of thinking of economics uh, as being about choice and he he mentions this explicitly he says you know the the standard view of economics is Infinite wants, finite resources, so now what? Well, you've got to choose, and you want to choose to make yourself as well off as you can do, and that's that's you got to deal with the fact that there's trade-offs and maybe diminishing margin utility. You won't get as much pleasure from this, the fifth item as the fourth uh, once you've already had the four, 
And so we're saying that's the standard view of economics. It's about choice and how to deal with the fact that I can't have everything I want. I got I to choose. He says that's the wrong focus. The focus should be on our interactions in the marketplace, very broadly defined to mean not just at the farmer's market and not just on the web when I buy something, but all the different ways that you and I might interact with every, we all interact with each other uh, commercially and non-commercially. Right. Yeah. So Buchanan, in so just let's, let's date the, the, the piece. Buchanan, oh, yeah. this was his 1963 address as outgoing president of the Southern Economic Association. It was published in the Southern Economic Journal in 1964. Um, and so this is published, is written and published at the height of of uh, what what we economists call welfare economics, and and the and the promise of welfare economics to to like redo the world and make it so much better. And Buchanan's pushing back against this. So he, of course, doesn't deny that individuals have to make choices, and that making choices correctly, of course, is better than making choices randomly or or, or incorrectly. Um, but I think the best way to summarize the message of that piece is the following. There are many ways to do it, but I think this is a good one. Um, uh, the, the economy as a whole, whether you're talking about a country or the globe or humanity, is not the same thing as a person. So you, Russ Roberts, you face at any moment uh, certain opportunities and constraints. You have limited income. You have preferences that are greater than all, than your income will allow you to fully satisfy. So you have to choose how to spend your income. You know, do, do you, you take this vacation or instead of buying a new car or vice versa? This is something we all face. Even Jeff Bezos is faced with unlimited, unlimited wants or wants greater than his, his resources. And of course, at some level, this is true for the economy as a whole, right? Um, but there's a big difference, Buchanan says. Unlike an individual, right, who has in his or her own mind knowledge of his of that person's preferences and their opportunities, there is no mind for society as a whole, and it's wrong. It's a mistake to think that the 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 United States or Germany or humanity uh, uh, faces uh, the same kind of decision making structure that an individual faces right because there's no agency in the same way that i have i have autonomy in some dimension over much of my life not all of it obviously but some of my life the idea of of transferring that same autonomous vision to a country he's saying is 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 intellectually uh flawed yeah, and and because because there are a variety of reasons why this analogy between a, a genuine individual and a collective fails, but a really important one is that unlike for an individual, um, uh, the the a group of people has no unified set of preferences. You have your preferences; they may change. Of course, of course, they do change. I have my preferences, um, but you and I together even though we're close friends, we don't have a single set of preferences. There is no one right allocation of how you and I should spend uh, our, our income. So it, when we're engaged in exchange with each other, uh, 
uh, we're not together trying to satisfy some one set of preferences. We're not together trying to achieve some one set of goals. You're trying to achieve your goals. I'm trying to achieve mine. Now, it might be, in fact, it typically is through exchange, uh, you can better help me to achieve my goal uh, uh, because you have some comparative advantage that I don't, and I can better help you achieve your goal. But it's a, it's a fundamentally different uh, kind of set of actions. So when, you, when you go to the store with money, you, know, you go to the supermarket and you have 20 bucks, you spend it in order to you know, maximize your utility, as economists say. Uh, but, but in a society, uh, there has to be some way to reconcile all these different preferences and exchange, interpersonal exchange, whether it be commercial, non-commercial, as you pointed out rightly, you can explicitly recognize that exchange takes place in many ways beyond the commercial. Exchange is a way in which people with conflicting, it, sometimes conflicting, but, but, but always not perfectly congruent preferences meet up which meet up with each other and figure out ways how each person can better help the other achieve his or her own ends without 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 us having to as a society uh determine you know what 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 is the best allocation of resources Buchanan said there is no the best allocation of resources despite the fact that economists often spoke in that way. It's a, it's, a, it's a mental distraction to think that just as you, Russ Roberts, have a, a best allocation of your income, that America has a best allocation of, of its income. It is a very subtle point, but, but he, he, Buchanan went from, used that understanding that a collective is not an individual to say, look, what, what do people do? Well, people exchange. They, ex- they, they exchange in arm's length commercial transactions. They exchange by joining clubs. They exchange by creating political organizations. All of these are forms of exchange. By the way, what, one reason why a lot of uh, uh, you know, more hardcore libertarians don't like Buchanan is because Buchanan always insisted on modeling politics as exchange. For Buchanan, it wasn't politics wasn't just a pure power play. Now he recognized that in reality, sometimes it was. I and mean, obviously, you know, jo- Joseph Stalin wasn't engaged in exchange. It was a pure pure power play. But Buchanan held out the hope that realistically, in in this world, particularly the democratic world, that politics could be a, a, a positive sum, a process of exchange. Uh, so there are many different ways to exchange and. So let's not worry about whether or not our our exchanges are somehow leading to some mathematical optimum. Let's, as economists, look at what people do, understand their motivations, and fig- and, and and try to understand how how when person A exchanges with person B, uh, how they both get, gain. How we might alter the institutional structure to allow. Uh, a to exchange with not just B but also C and D, so that the possibilities for mutually advantageous exchange can take place. Let me end this my, my little monologue here by saying that Israel Kirzner uh, wrote in the Southern Economic Journal a reply to Buchanan's 
article. Very sympathetic reply. And I think Kirzner's right, though. He said, look, Buchanan, in, in a way, overstates his case. It's not that choice, it's not that choice doesn't matter at all and exchange is all that matters. When people are exchanging, they're making choices. So let's not forget that. Uh, but I take Kirzner's point, and I'm pretty sure Buchanan would have agreed, agree with it. Kirzner said that Buchanan was saying what Austrians say, when Austrian economists say, the market is a process. It's a process. It's a process of exchange. Well, and so let's, let's look at the economy as this ongoing process. And let's not hold it to a standard of, oh, you know, is, has it reached perfection? It's never going to reach perfection. It, there, there are always opportunities. There are always mistakes. There are always errors. There are always flaws. And then individuals notice these and they want to use their energies and creativity to, 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 to try to make improvements. So I think the, the the way you're talking about the political process that Buchanan saw it, I, the way I think of that is that market outcomes and political outcomes are both examples of emergent order. Yes. Um, the difference between them is that the feedback loops that are there that make that order work well are different. Um, the gains and costs of different actions are different in market behavior than in political behavior. Political behavior, there is competition. It's constrained in very particular ways, and, and it, that depends on what kind of political system you have. Um, and in general, in market outcomes, what we call commercial markets, competition generally works very well to protect consumers and workers if there's a sufficient amount of it. There's less in political markets, and, and I think there's more opportunity for exploitation. Less competition. But, less competition, yeah. Sorry. But there are many cases of market outcomes where competition is either ineffective or the feedback loops aren't there. I can dump my garbage in your yard if, if, if we're living in a, some a kind of uh, non-government world, and, and I can use force. And I wouldn't want to then say that, oh, whatever happens must be great because emergent order is great. It's not. Sometimes it fail. It leads to results we are not happy with in commercial life. Sometimes it leads to results we're not happy with in government life. And I think the power of Buchanan's approach, which is very hard for, I think, most economists to internalize, is to see them both as examples of a similar process, but with different institutional pieces to it. And that's what I think he's suggesting we ought to be looking at. Now, yeah. having, having heard what you just said, I want to disagree a little bit with the what I think is the centerpiece of the article. It's true that he's he's railing against uh, and says so explicitly utilitarianism as a way of assessing outcomes, and in particular, exactly along the lines you said that in a utilitarian world, if I'm going to sum up all the happinesses and I don't have a metric to sum them across individuals, as you point out, since we're different, we don't have shared preferences. Now what? And yeah. economists grappled with this. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm writing a little bit about this in my next book. I don't know if it's going to make it into the final version. But, you know, the original thing was, well, let's just count you. Let's measure it somehow. We'll find a way. And we yeah. gave up on that. And we said, okay, we can't do that. Let's use dollars. So the amount you're willing to pay is a measure of the gains to you or the amount you're willing to pay to avoid something. That's a measure of the cost. And I'll just add those up. Problem is, of course, is that the value of a dollar to me depends on how much income I have. And that biases the 
calculations, both against and in favor of rich people, depending on the nature of the calculation. We're not going to get into that now. But his insight, which I think is profound, is that you can't assess the optimality or attractiveness of social outcomes objectively. You could obsess. Uh, you can measure them, Don. I can. I can say I like that outcome. You could say yeah. I don't, or I do like it also. But to suggest that we can then get some global assessment is not possible. So that's the first thing that that he says that I think I agree with. But he makes, I think, a, another point, which I think is methodologically extremely interesting. And I don't know if it's going to be interesting to anybody else except you and me, Don. But his, his point is is that if we if we have the utility function, the thing that supposedly captures how I feel about certain outcomes, uh, which I prefer to others, which outcome, you know, I have to choose between a vacation on the beach and a vacation in the mountains. Turns out I hate the beach. I love the mountains. So when I have time for vacation, I choose the mountains. That would be an example of, of choice. And what Buchanan says in the article, which is so interesting, is that that reduces the human experience to an engineering problem. Yeah. Uh, if we assume that people have these preferences and they have to make choices because they have finite incomes to achieve those preferences and, and outcomes that they like, then it's just a math problem. And of course, that's the way we teach it in most mm -hmm. graduate programs and even undergraduate programs increasingly. It's a math problem. That's what economics is. And then when you ask people, but do people really solve equations? Oh, no, 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 of course. Of course they don't, but they act as if they do. And what Buchanan, I see, is, I see Buchanan as criticizing implicitly Friedman's, you'll tell me the year, 53, methodological 53. article, yeah. where he says, oh, of course they don't actually maximize anything. They don't sit around making calculations and trade-offs between marginal this and marginal that relative to the prices, but they act as if they do, just like the truck driver on a rainy night taking a turn, doesn't know the physics equations of friction, but through experience acts as if the truck driver is is following those equations. And yeah. what what I have come to believe is that that is a dangerous presumption because after a while you forget that it's as, as if. We had uh, Paul Flaterer on the program talking about this. You can go back and listen to that episode, listeners. Fantastic uh, episode. I grew up, in economics, believing that Milton Friedman was right, and I've come to believe that he was very wrong, that, that first of all, we don't just care about descriptiveness. In other words, if I want to know how a truck driver behaves on a rainy night taking a curve at 45 miles an hour, yeah, it's a pretty good working assumption to assume that they know the physics. That's a good working assumption if I want to figure out how, how much braking the truck driver is going to do. But that's not what we do in economics. We say that we act, we assume people act as if they're maximizing something. Then we use their choices to assess the valuableness or dis, un, the unpleasantness of policy decisions, and that mm -hmm. just is a, a leap that doesn't follow. And I see Buchanan is saying that he's saying you can't treat human beings as robots or computers. You can, you can, you can, you, you're you're free to, but don't it's make. Inaccurate. But if you're not careful, first of all, it's inaccurate. It's not descriptive. It's not. It's descriptive of the outcomes. It's not descriptive of what actually happens. And therefore, you've stripped out a huge portion of what makes life, uh, what makes economics insightful. It's not about engineering, which is increasingly what our profession has become. It's about these market transactions and the whole panoply of 
institutional and norm arrangements and norms that come with that. So, so what do you think of that? So uh, first, for a moment, to get back to the, to the what should economists do article, uh, Buchanan was warning in his own way against uh, this, this engineering notion. Uh, he doesn't say so explicitly, but it's very clear to me that one of the things he's warning against is this notion that, look, once if we come to think of the society, the country, as being like this big giant person that has preferences, well, then it's too natural to assume that, okay, the government will then take over. Embody it. Yes. And so, so we, we don't have to rely upon individuals. In fact, we, we should de- de- uh, delegate to the government the power, the authority to tell us what to do. The government, because it, it, it has this overarching viewpoint, it then will allocate resources for us in much better and, and more efficient ways than us individually in our messy own ways doing it in a decentralized manner. Buchanan said, no, it won't. It, it, it's just fundamentally mistake. So he's warning against that view. Um, at a second level, you didn't mention it, but I think you're getting to this other article of Buchanan's that we want to discuss, and that's his 1978 piece, Natural and Artifactual Man. At least I, I, I see some of that in what you just said. Yep. So in that piece, uh, which Buchanan wrote for a Liberty Fund seminar that he was attending in 1978, um, uh, he, he says, look, uh, obviously there are a lot of constraints that human beings face in the real world that are just, uh, you know, they're, they're just unavoidable, right? We can't flap our arms and fly, right? That's just a natural constraint. Um, uh, but he says, economists are wrong, uh, or anyone is wrong, to assume that individuals have, each individual has well-formed preferences and they remain that way forever. Or that these preferences just somehow change. Yes, preferences change, but they just, we, we human beings are just bump, we, we just experience a change. Yesterday, I liked vanilla ice cream more than I like strawberry ice cream today, vice versa. Buchanan said, no, so yeah, sometimes that does happen. But an important part of being human is the desire to change your own preferences. We have a preference for changing our own preferences. So that's the artifactual man part. He, we would, he would write it today, natural and artifactual persons, right, obviously. Yeah. Um, and so Buchanan said, uh, uh, it, it's just, it's just p- part of being human that we, we, want to, we want to be a different person in, in the future. Um, and, and so we act today in a way that, that we hope will make us this different person in the future. And, you know, for anyone this side of sociopathy, we want to be a better person in the future. We may achieve that. We may have a wrong assessment about, what, about, about whether that really will make us a better person. But people, are always want, people constantly want to change themselves. So we have preference for preference changes, to put it in terms of modern of modern economics. And this shows you something that, that you mentioned at the beginning of our, our talk. There was a, there's a very philosophical side to Buchanan. He wasn't willing to simply take this simple device of, okay, fixed, fixed preferences. Uh, uh, let's see how people act with respect to these preferences and assume that that's what they want. You may be, you may be uh, uh, get, get, buying education for yourself today, not because you want to increase your monetary income. Maybe that's the only thing. But maybe 
You're buying education for yourself today because you want to become a different person in the future. Uh, and, and, and an interesting implication of that is, uh, and you kind of explicitly understood this. Let's say you succeed. You, 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 you buy education for yourself and, and you become this different person in the future. Um, the different person in the future might look back upon the actions that you took today and say, oh, that was a mistake. But there's no way that today you can know that. And so this is just, this is just one of these features of reality that Buchanan said is interesting and we have to, to live with it. As we become different people, as we, change, as we, as we act to change who we are, uh, we can never be sure if we'll be happy with that because, because our preferences change. And so I, I have preferences today that make me think I want to be something different tomorrow. If I succeed in making myself something different tomorrow, I may look back and think, oh, that was a mistake. And so this is a, this shows Buchanan's deep, deep humanity in, in, this, in the sense that he, he wanted to understand how human beings as we are engage, not with just ourselves, but with the world around us and other human beings. And, and it just, you just get such a profound appreciation of, of the exchange process of the human enterprise by, by reading, by reading philosophically deep economists like like Buchanan. Yeah, I just want to reference a couple of recent EconTalk episodes, which listeners may have noticed this is very similar to. Uh, Agnes Callard writes about aspiration, the idea that we aspire to be something different than we are now. Uh, L.A. Paul talked about on the program uh, from her book, uh, I think it's the book's Transformative Experiences, which talks about what she calls the vampire problem. Before your vampire, it looks horrifying. After your vampire they all seem pretty happy. Not every one of them, yeah. but they, they look back on their former tawdry life as mere mortals with some shame, probably. And therefore, how do you choose? What does it mean to maximize your utility in that framework? It's not a meaningful, it's not a meaningful right. question. And Buchanan really says that. It, it also uh, echoes work by Harry Frankfurt, who talks about mm-hmm. human beings. Are the We don't just have wants. We have wants about our wants, which is a different right. way of saying what you just said. And he has a lot of interesting things. He writes really thoughtfully on that. Obviously, Frankfurt does, and maybe we'll put some links up to that. But I, I want to just focus on one uh, little semantic thing that I think is important for listeners. The title of his article is Natural and Artifactual Man. And as you say, he'd say person, people, yeah. or some other uh, non-gendered formulation, presumably. Or he might not. Who knows? But He wasn't just talking about males. Yeah, yeah obviously. <laughs> But I, I want to focus on the word artifactual, which is not a common word, and it easily could be heard, especially if English is not your native, native language, is artificial. They're, right, they're right. related. But think about the word artifact. We use the word artifact as something that the arta part of that is, is, is the same root as artisanal. It means that somebody crafted it. Mm-hmm. And an artifactual human being is self-crafted. The idea is that is that I'm a vessel to be transformed. I'm a vessel to be shaped. Uh, you know, think about a potter uh, shaping a, a, a piece of clay. Now, there's a tension there, which is if you've ever tried to change a habit, you know, it's really hard. So we're not so – the clay sometimes gets pretty hard to manipulate. But we also know we do change. And I think even when we don't change, aspiring to that change is there's something noble in the human enterprise about it. So, so what to, to 
summarize this this piece of our conversation and and to bring the two articles together, which was you know your original idea. Which you know when I, we were talking about, one, I think the first talk I said, well, have you read Natural and Artifactual Man? And and it's just it's a fabulous piece because it ties in. So even though it was written fifteen years later, roughly, it, yeah. the, it, here's Buchanan in 1963 saying. Unless I have this sterile view that human beings just maximize utility, that's a problem for a robot, a computer. Real life's messier, more complicated. And then he takes it and he says, and he, and he, he enriches that idea in 1978 and says, it's more complicated because we have a say. We're not, these are not natural man or natural human beings or animals. They have, they're stuck with what they like and don't like. You know, they have basic fundamental urges of food, shelter, security. Yeah. Sex, etc., procreation. Human beings have all those things, but we can rebel yep. against them. We can decide how important they are to us. We can choose to to not do everything that quote comes naturally to us. And the reason this is so, I think, fascinating. Thinking about economics is, I think I heard it first from George Will. This really lovely formulation, which is, where you stand depends on where you sit. Mm-hmm. And what that means is, you know, if it's in your incentive, you're sitting in in this situation where your bread is buttered by somebody who believes X, you're going to probably believe X because, you know, otherwise you're going to have a lot of discontent uh, and you might get fired and nobody wants to get fired. So you tend to follow the incentives. And that's an essential part of economics. In fact, S- Steve Levitt was on the program recently. I think he believes that is economics is that people mm-hmm. respond to incentives and the economic problem is to get the incentives right. And certainly that is part of it, part of economics. Part of but at the same time, I think one of the reasons that normal human beings hate economists and hate economics is the implication, oh, you're just a robot. You yeah. just do it. You know, you just, I'll, if I want to get you to do something different, I just mm-hmm. need to flip a switch. I'll just jack up this, this price or lower this price. And, you know, I'll just, I can steer you without you even knowing I can manipulate you. And what Buchanan is saying is that that is an incredibly sterile view of the human enterprise. I don't think he would deny that people respond to incentives. Of course they do. But I can't help but think about uh, – I think I read, mentioned this recently. It was, uh, it's going to come out in another episode. I think that's going to come out in a little bit. Um, when I think of Solzhenitsyn in his book In the First Circle or Vasily uh, Grossman in his book, uh, forever flowing or everything flows there's two different translations a lot of that book is about how people under the most dire incentives life and death in the mm-hmm. gulag and it would be the same thing in the concentration camps that victor frankl writes about in man's search for meaning here are people who have every incentive to do anything they can because otherwise they're going to die and what solzhenitsyn and grossman are honoring in those books are the people who said no i'm not going to follow my self-interest narrowly defined I don't want to become that kind of person. I don't want to be a person, even though I recognize it's a zero-sum game, and that, that piece of bread is a piece of bread. I, if, I, if my neighbor gets it, it means I don't have it. I don't want to be that person. I'm not going to respond to that incentive. I understand I have that incentive. And I think a huge mistake that we make it, and I'm almost done with this long rant. The huge mistake we make in economic education is we mistakenly, grotesquely, teach our students that what is self-interested is moral or ethical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was talking to high school students recently, and I, I challenged them. I said, you find a wallet in the street. It's got $10,000 in cash. No one's around. Should you keep the money? What does economics predict you should do? Answer, they almost all said, 
Oh, you should keep the money because that's in your own self-interest. That's That makes your utility higher. I said, well, what if you feel guilty about keeping the money? Oh, I guess you know, that, that might go into the yeah. calculation <laughs> as well. And then I said, yeah. suppose you have no conscience. I asked them what was rational, by the way. They said rational. the rational person should keep the money. So, wow, what a bizarre thing. And I said, I said, suppose you're a person who has no conscience. It doesn't bother you at all. You're just going to enjoy the new iPhone you're going to buy with the, with the cash that you find. Do you want to be that person? Could you imagine saying to yourself, I want to aspire to being a person who feels guilty. I want to live in a world where people feel guilty to keep taking money from people they could return it to. And I assume that, you know, in the example that the wallet has your name and address and you can return it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, yeah. And I think we have, as economists, we have, and, you know, Robert Frank has written about this. I used to be skeptical about it, but I think he's right. By teaching people a narrow, uninteresting version of, of utility maximization, a sterile version, we've stripped out this part of aspiration and and the potential we have to rise above ourselves. And mm -hmm. um, I, I just think that's a terrible mistake. And Buchanan was sounding that. I didn't read it until about a month ago, but I've been thinking about it implicitly for, for the last six months. And I think he's got a very deep and fabulous formulation of it. Yeah. So let me tie the two essays together in, in, in a way that's different than yours, but complements it. Um, so Buchanan has this great line that, that even he thought was great because he italicized it and uses it twice <laughs> in, the, in the concluding paragraph. But it is it, it, it's a really nice line. He says, in concluding paragraph of, of uh, natural and artifactual man, he says, man wants freedom to become the man he wants to become. Say it again. What do you mean? Slow down. Man Say it again. Man wants freedom to become the man he wants to become. In other words, he doesn't want freedom in order to maximize utility, right? That's how economists normally present it. That's how Milton Friedman, as great an economist as he was, that's how George Stigler, as great as an economist as he was, that's how they would formulate it, right? So we have this utility function, that's what economists call you know, this set of preferences. And, and I want to go through life uh, uh, and, and, and achieve as many of my preferences as possible. And when the government obstructs me from doing that, it's preventing me from achieving as many of my preferences as possible. So that's why freedom is is bad, right? Why freedom is good? You, why regulation? Why, I mean, that's why. I'm sorry. That's why. Gov, that's why <laughs> government interference is bad. That's why freedom is good. Freedom allows me to achieve as many as possible. Get more stuff. For my preference. Yeah, get right? more stuff. So Work change better. Interference blocks that. Buchanan's point was much deeper. Uh, you kind of wouldn't have disagreed, of course, on, on, on a purely mechanical part. Well, yes, if you have a set of preferences and government stops you from, no, you can't buy that loaf of bread because you're Jewish, right? Well, that's that's interfering with your ability to achieve happiness. You would disapprove of that, of course. But his point is more profound than, than his, his case for freedom in, in, in this instance is much more profound. Uh, each of us wants to become someone different. And it's a good thing. It's a natural human thing. We want to become uh, someone different. And there's no way, it's not even theoretically possible, forget about practically possible, it's not even theoretically possible for government to know, for the state to know, for some third party to know what you want to become, what I want to become. And so it when it blocks, when, to, when it obstructs our freedom of action, it obstructs our ability to 
construct ourselves to 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 use our artisanal uh, control over ourselves to become an artifactual person different than the one we are today. And so B- Buchanan's case for freedom, his, his, his uh, uh, case for freedom in this instance is uh, uh, let, give people maximum possible scope uh, so that individuals can, can choose to become different individuals. It's not just about maximizing utility. Of course, you can always, as you know, Russ is an economist, you can always cram the, the, you can always cram into a utility maximizing description what's going on. Well, it's all ultimately about maximizing utility, but you lose so much there. Um, it's about, I, I want to become a different person. I want the freedom to become a different person. Um, and it's a very rich and u- more humane way of looking at human action than is the typical neoclassical, even the typical free market neoclassical way of, of looking at it and justifying uh, freedom. Yeah, and I, I want to make a distinction between different kinds of changes we might make. And, of course, Agnes Callard in her book Aspiration in our conversation talks about some of these differences. I might want to become a, a great golfer, mm-hmm. okay? So to do that, I've got to work at it. And that's part of my transformation. It, it's a much narrower version than what I think Buchanan has in mind generally, but it's an example of it. You know, and to do that, I might need lessons. To, and to have lessons, we need to have a society that's wealthy enough that somebody can specialize in being a golf pro, which is a, you know, a very modern first world phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, my kids are all into cooking. They watch hours of YouTube and they've become incredibly sophisticated cooks and consumers of food. And, and have a nuanced understanding of, of flavors and interactions, which which somewhat bewilders me, a, akin to them becoming passionate golfers. I was like, well, okay, that's different. Not me, but yeah. fine. I get, I'm a, I get, I get the uh, externalities. I get the uh, yeah. positive, positive externalities. externalities. I get to eat their food a lot, which is when they're home, which is wonderful because they're phenomenal cooks, all of them. Um, but that's not. That's about learning a craft. And that's not really, to me, what Buchanan's talking about. What Buchanan's talking about is what Dan Klein talked about in our episode on Adam Smith and Honest Income, which is that the this is such a deep idea, and again, I hope to write about this in my new book, the idea that something that starts off as harmful to you in the utility sense, returning the wallet, if you're not, if you don't have a conscience, returning the wallet, you're a sucker. Right. You just gave away a thousand dollars for no purpose. And what what I understood Dan to be arguing, and he invoked Montagna and he invoked Smith, is that the goal of becoming a better person is the way you get there is you habituate things that you used to think of as selfless and turn them into selfish. And that sounds bizarre. So let me let me just try to explain it. Yeah. Yeah. So I returned the wall. I just I returned a wall to uh, a year or so ago. It was the. I think I've talked about it on the program. I did actually find a wall on the street in San Francisco, and we eventually got it back to the owner, which was quite complicated. It wasn't straightforward as I'd hoped, but I'm really glad I did it. Okay, and if you say, "Oh, that wasn't that wasn't selfless," you got benefit from it. You felt good about yourself, and that's the sense in which, like you said, you can always cram everything into a utility maximizing thing. But I can imagine a me, and maybe it's a younger me or a different me, where I wouldn't have returned it. 
And through the process of returning it and, and creating a self-image and an identity of myself as an ethical person, as a caring person, as a person who gets pleasure from other people's pleasure, I transform myself into taking something that used to be a sacrifice and turning into actually yeah, self-interested because I got pleasure from it in a non-monetary sense. And I think that is one of the deepest ideas I've heard in a long time. Yeah, this idea yeah. that through the regular uh, performance of good deeds, say, you become a person who learns to enjoy good deeds is a crazy idea, right? That, that yeah. That's like, and, and going back to our, the vampire problem, well, you don't, don't, don't change yourself that way because then you'll have to give away back all the money. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's but, the, it's it's the same. Yeah, th that's the same a good thing, thing. And, and it's a good thing for you. Know, you. you can imagine. You can. You know, I, I, when you gave your the example of the of the of, of returning the money from a lost wallet, yeah, unfortunately, I can imagine lots of economists writing papers saying, "Oh, well, you know, uh, uh, you should keep it because if you re if you return it, you reduce the incentives of people." to take care yeah. of their possessions. So you're going to promote people losing their wallets. And so it's that. And so this is the, this is a, another example of why people don't like economists. economists yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very easy to come up with these ex post justifications for all sorts of actions. That said, let, 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 you know, let, let me say though, that, that and, 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 well, the danger of that, the danger of people disliking economists because of that, is that there are a handful of situations, very important ones, yeah, where the economist's explanations are valid, ethically uh, 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 elevated, um, yet not well enough known to the general public. But when economists come along with these sort of trivial um, uh, explanations, such as the hypothetical one I just suggested, that really does our profession a disservice, I believe. But, you know, the... I, I have not read the Israel Curzon response to the article that you, that you referred to, but uh, when I was reading the Buchanan article, I thought, yeah, it kind of goes too far, you know, because yeah. I, I do have to take account of incentives. I do have to take account of how people make choices self-interestedly. But So I think what Buchanan's do, and, and I'm just going to add one thing here because I think it's important. We've talked about a lot in the program is Peter Singer example of the drowning child and you walk by and should you save the child? It's gonna, you're going to ruin your shoes. They're worth $150, but you're going to save a life. Does the economist say, yeah, you keep walking. Who wants to lose $150? And, yeah. and Singer's point is that, well, we all agree that the right thing is to save the kid. And I think the economist pushback, my pushback sometimes on that is, yeah, well, doesn't that change the incentives? If every time a kid's Somebody recently sent me an email about it. Every time a kid's in the pond, does their, do their parents say, oh, I don't have to worry about the kid now. Some stranger can save them. You know, this is a more general point. The older I get, I think this is true for, for everyone, no matter what field they're in. The older I get, the more I appreciate wisdom as opposed to smarts. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and it's just a, a, lot of, a lot of what is I find more and more appealing now are, are, are people who exercise good judgment. And good judgment, it's not a function of 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 intelligence or IQ, and um, uh, you know when I was younger, I was much more uh, uh, in, enthusiastic about these clever incentive arguments, um, and I'm less much less enthusiastic about them today. But but that, that's when I'm around my fellow economists. Yeah, <laughs> when I'm you know engaged with the general public. All I can just think of, don't you understand incentives? Don't you understand incentives? And so it's a matter of, it's a matter of judgment. Right? If, if, you, if you push 
if you become too clever as an economist in overplaying the incentives card, you, you, you're using poor judgment and, and, and you're causing people to become deaf to you in the future when you have something genuinely important to say about the role of incentives. And there's no, there's no formula to say, well, you know, what, you, well, you, we should use the incentive argument up to this point, but not beyond that point. There is no formula for it. It's, it's a matter of judgment and wisdom and, 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 uh, well, judgment and wisdom. And I wish there were a formula for it, but, but <laughs> there isn't. So let's bring this back uh, full circle to where we started. And I think, um, I, I think for me, I have a lot of trouble figuring out the full implications of Buchanan's argument. Maybe you've thought about it. I'm sure you've thought about more than I have. So he's saying, you know, don't focus on this sterile question of how to get people to do what you want. Don't treat people just as robots who just go around trying to get the most stuff. So that's part of what he's saying. He's saying something deeper than that, obviously. He's saying the focus on that as a profession has misled guided we, we're misguided we, we need to think about a different focus and that's to focus on the marketplace and i think when you and i say focus on the marketplace the average listener even among economists says like you mean like the stock market you mean like the price of shoes like that's what we ought to focus on and i don't think that's what he's saying i think he's saying not something not quite deeper than that so you know you and i both spend a lot of time teaching when i used to teach and, I, and you still do in the classroom talking about supply and demand Buchanan's probably a fan of that, more or less. But he's not saying, oh, we ought to do more supply and demand and less consumer theory, which I think is a good idea, by the way. But that's not his yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying something a lot deeper than that. Try to bring yeah. us home with a summary of, of that. So in it, – it's, it's a great question. In the 1964 article, What Should Economists Do? He explicitly, 63 or 64? Well, it was written in 63. It was published in 64. Yeah, I, I only asked Don because, you know, listeners don't know this, but Don knows every date. And I suspect that when he was doing – he knows when people were born. He knows how old I am. He might even know my birthday. He is – December 20th. No, 19th. Oh, you're off. Oh, a oh, rare no, I, know the, I know the year too. I didn't think he wanted yeah, me to say no, that. No, I don't mind. It's 1950. 1954. Yeah. yeah. So Don has this interesting thing where he's a pre-Google – totally reliable source. So when he said 64 and having said 63 before, I knew there was some subtle thing yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. No, and when you did your summary of Buchanan's life and when he met Tulloch and all that, I have a feeling you weren't reading it. No, I wasn't. You were just kind of, because people can't tell in the Zoom world, but I have a feeling you just knew all those dates by heart. But anyway, go ahead. Sorry I interrupted you. So, some people are oceans of knowledge. I'm a cesspool of trivia, as I heard someone say. <laughs> um, so back to what should economists do the one published in 1960, the article published in 1964. In there, Buchanan explicitly criticizes the theory of perfect competition. Oh yeah, which which remains a mainstay in neoclassical economics. And, and in that theory, for the, you know, the, I don't have to get into it in detail, but but in that theory, uh, every individual, every individual. Uh, takes the rest of the world, including other individuals, as just given. It's like you are Robinson Crusoe and and that you you you're on this eye, you're on this in this place where you have all these opportunities and constraints. And they are just what they are. You can't change them. You can't, you don't talk to anyone. 
You, nothing changes. You just react to all the all the the, the numbers that you see. Uh, you, you have your own preferences, and so given what people are selling, given the prices at, what, at which they're selling them, you you act in a way that maximizes your own preferences. Buchanan says that's not the world we live in. The world we live in has all sorts of of at any moment all sorts of uh, un fulfilled opportunities and problems to deal with. And so when we go out into the world, uh, I don't just see you as a seller of, 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 of shoes. Uh, I say, look, I have this idea for making better shoes. Let's you and I go into business together. This is just an example. Go into business together to make this different kind of shoe that you know uh, I think people will want. And so, and so you and I construct this different uh, possible exchange arrangement uh, or or I, I I see that there is a a swamp to use his example a swamp that's mosquito infested and uh, it, it, people don't don't like that and so I gather with my neighbors and say hey look why don't we all why don't we all pitch in and and, and create this little pool of funds and and we'll hire someone to fill in the swamp and that will eliminate our mosquito problem. In the world of perfect competition, you don't in, you as an individual don't engage with the humanity of anyone. There are other individuals in that world, but they just do what they do. They are selling at a price that's not going to change. They're selling whatever it is and and the quantity the quality that's not going to change. And so it's just as if you're dealing with sentient rocks. Uh the uh, but 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 uh uh, or, or programmable rocks. You press the button and the rock does whatever the rock does. Machines. And Buchanan says, we're not dealing with machines. And so they're all, so we, we, we go out into the world, we talk with people, we propose different exchange relationships. Not all of them will work. None of them will ever work perfectly in the eyes of God, but, but they always lead us to the extent that we're free. They generally lead us to improve our world, and that's how that's how we that's what economists should do. Look at how people engage with each other. Examine the institutions within which these engagements occur to 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 to, to see if we might be able to improve the institutions in some way. Uh, but don't treat people as if everyone else in the world is merely a mechanical means to your to your own end. Understand that. That even though that person can be a means to your end, uh, you can make yourself a means to that person's end, and 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 and, and so e exchange with that person. Exchange not just things. Exchange ideas. Exchange exchange ideas for opportunities for for what to do. Yeah. And this is a much more rich and accurate understanding of the world that we live in. So I want to go back. I forgot to finish a thought. I want to finish it and let you react to it, and then. Uh... One other thing I want to add, then we'll we'll be done. We were talking about freedom and the freedom to become the person you want to become. And I used golf as an example in the in the YouTube for cooking and all that. I forgot to yeah. add the next part, which is the most important part. It's not so much the freedom to be a quote a good person. That was the example we we talked about, and that's important. But it's something so something else there, which is that I want to be. I might want to be a golf pro. Mm -hmm. It's not just oh I can become a better at golf. 
my whole self, my identity, my whole work life requires freedom for the kind of exchange that you and I spend a lot of time talking about over the years, Don, which is the power of the division of labor and specialization and how you can't have that without tremendous diversity of people, vol- right. scale. That's something I learned from Buchanan actually at a workshop and I, we did, I did an episode on it on Smith and Ricardo. This idea that a lot of our specialization doesn't come from just the fact that we're different, which is Ricardo's insight. It comes from the fact that as the economy grows, there's more opportunity for specialization. The division of labor, as Smith said, is limited by the extent of the market. Think about a world, think about growing up in, 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 in 1200, besides the fact that life was a little bit nasty, brutish, and short, the, the career choices were quite limited. Yeah. You, you had to, most people were farmers, right? And there are people who love to farm, God bless them. But if you aspired to be something other than a farmer, you couldn't do it. And the other piece of, I think, Buchanan's theme is that that freedom for, for the creativity and expansion uh, – is what allows us to become a contributor to the others around us through the goods that we produce or the businesses we start or the work we do within someone else's business who has a vision. The other thing I wanted to close with for me, and then I'll let you take us home, which I probably already said, is I think about something like the Y Combinator, which is uh, an incubator for for ideas. And you know, I had Nathan Bocharczyk on the – I can't remember if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He was one of the founders of Airbnb. And Paul Graham, who's also been on the program, was was running, was the head of the Y Combinator at the time. And Airbnb was proposing uh, an idea for a new way that people could live in other people's houses. Ridiculous, crazy idea that that everyone at Y Combinator said was a bad idea. Yeah. But they 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 funded them because they liked the cereal boxes that they made as a fundraiser for the program. And if you haven't heard that episode, go back and listen to it. Uh, It's really an extraordinary thing. But that institutional arrangement called venture capital is something that I think Buchanan was talking about. Without that institutional setup, which requires certain regulatory structure, requires a certain innovation, that seeded an enormous number of other innovations that have given people ways to express themselves, their gifts, their dreams, and so on. And, you know, you and I talk about this all the time. Uh, you know, I wrote a book about it, which I know you're kindly a fan of, The Choice. That book makes the case for why free trade makes you richer. But ultimately, I argue in that book that the reason trade is important is because it expands your opportunities to express your your gifts, your dreams, your skills, yes. and, and choose yes. where you want to be in this great, vast network of human interaction we call the marketplace, which is, again, not about the farmer's market or the stock market. It's about this enormous web that no one weaves, that is no one controls, where we choose our place. And we can fit in over here and over there, and we can step back in other places. And I think that's what Buchanan's teaching us, to, to appreciate the the richness of that and to study it and think about it. And I think uh, he was right. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. One of the, and what you just said is testament, what I, I'm about to say. One of the most pernicious myths about the case for free markets, a, a, a pernicious, pernicious misunderstandings about where free market economists come from, this is including even Milton Friedman, right, is that all we care about is maximizing material gain, Yeah. right? 
Of course, we recognize the importance of material prosperity. If you're not, if, if you're starving, it's the alternative. Yeah, but <laughs> if but read Hayek, read Buchanan, read Julian Simon, read Russ Roberts. Uh, it's Dr. not Brown. just uh, well. It's not just about Deirdre McCloskey, right? Uh, uh, I'm leaving many many. Out. It's not just about maximizing the amount of stuff and sensual pleasure you get. Uh, I don't know, maybe there are a handful of economists out there who, who believe that. They haven't had any influence on me. Um, the, the, my great heroes, Buchanan, Hayek, you, Julian Simon, um, Deirdre McCloskey, these are people who recognize that life is, is, is about becoming. It's about dealing with, with um, uncertainty and imperfections and trying to grapple with, with them. And the, the, the individual who grasps only for more material stuff and sensual pleasure is you know, a really pathetic creature. No one wants to be that person. No one would want to live in that world, in a world populated chiefly by those people. And, 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 and Buchanan's, the two essays that we spoke about today, I think, are two of Buchanan's best contributions in making this point. Yeah, I think I'm going to try to prettify, salvage what you just said. I don't know if you'll agree with it, but I think most economists would say, oh, no, we don't care about just stuff. But, you know, when we talk about standard of living, which would be the way that it, we would pretty it up, we're talking about that allows all kinds of other things, longer life and so on and, and, and other things. All the things I can't measure, really, the quality of life, the fact that right. that I can play tennis into my 80s if I want because I have an artificial knee that couldn't have been afforded 100 years ago, but now is, is relatively commonplace. That, that the economists say, well, yeah, when I say standard of living, that's just shorthand for everything else. And I think the challenge is, is that standard of living is measurable, sort of. Uh, you, can, you can measure it imperfectly. Yeah, and I think proxies for it. Yeah, I think we've been seduced by that to think if we're not careful, that's all there is. And I, I think what you're warning about is the importance of remembering it is just a proxy. It's not anything close to what we really care about. Yeah, yeah. And and th 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 this point, by the way. And I don't think, by the way, I don't think Milton Friedman only cared about Sterling. I think it would be fair to Milton. He he did care about charity and some other no, things. No, no. So so I'm saying so so even though Milton Friedman was much more you know mainstream conventional economist and focusing on you know money and quantities, uh, when you read Friedman's um, uh, uh, work deeply, he understood that human humanity was the, more than about about just maximizing stuff. Yeah, uh, and that self interest to be worthwhile had to be enlightened self interest, not grasping greedy unenlightened self-interest um and um and 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 so, you know so so people like buchanan the, the the case for free markets is the case for human flourishing it's not the case for maximizing gdp contrary to what a lot of people think yes there's a connection between more gdp and ability to to, to flourish but ultimately it's the ability to flourish that 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 matters and 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 the case of free markets is you and me and other individuals, we're the only ones who know how we want to flourish. I don't want some bureaucrat or some politician in some distant capital 
uh, telling me how I should flourish. I want to, I want the freedom to become the man I want to become. So. My guest today has been Don Boudreau. Don, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.